millennials, younger people in particular, have been living in this sort of world of, of superheroes, of what we saw kind of epic dramas. And I think that there's, it's not just Hollywood feeding this to us. It's that there's a demand for it. They're looking for heroes. But to think about, okay, well, what is the you know, hero in us? What would Superman do? What would Captain America do about climate change? From the McCourney Institute for Democracy on the campus of Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam. And I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. Uh, Today, guys, we are joined by Graham Bullock, an associate professor of political science and environmental studies at Davidson College in North Carolina. And uh, Graham's research, I think, is interesting. It is at the intersection of climate and deliberative democracy and uh, issues related to what it means to be a climate citizen, which is kind of the, the central theme of, of the, the conversation that I had with him. And all around the issue of climate change, right. which mm-hmm. which is of particular importance to this generation. I mean, they <clears throat> live longer. Yeah, well, <laughs> lots of polling is showing that they are more likely than older Americans to accept that climate change is occurring and that it's man-made. And, you know, interestingly, uh, uh, Gallup asked a question one time about uh, how likely is it that the effects of climate change will be felt during your life, during your lifetime. And 18 to 29-year-old Americans, 80% of them nearly said they expect it to be felt. So this is much, much more than older cohorts. And it just shows that they are really attuned to this and recognize that climate change is going to affect their lives and already has started to. Oh, absolutely. And, and so... Graham is uh, someone who's tried to develop um, or is trying to develop uh, new ways of engaging young people, right? Um, Why is that? Well, because young people are turned off by kind of traditional politics. Yeah, we've talked about that a right, bit before. Right, exactly. But they're also... I wonder how true that is after the 2018 election, where we saw a huge pretty increase. large increase yeah, doubling in, in many cases. Yeah, but uh, this all does draw upon the idea, right, that... Uh, Younger Americans are more likely to have a, a notion of citizenship in their heads that involves a kind of engagement, but not necessarily through formal political channels. Right, right. I think right? that's right. And so um, Graham looks at that in both ways. One, he tries to find ways uh, or models by which um, young people can feel engaged and, and frankly, empowered, because a, a lot of young people are almost at the point of despair about this, especially given the, the political climate uh, around climate change, both nationally and internationally. Yeah, I, I thought Greta Thunberg really spoke to that. Right, exactly. Well, when she Absolutely. was uh, at the UN to that sense of uh, emotional despair. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. And, and then the other way, uh, the other side of that is to, um, for people like us, <laughs> who are, are focused on uh, politics as elections and laws, to expand the concept of, of what counts in terms of politics. And so his idea is to legitimate, theoretically, this idea of engagement. But his argument would be, and I think this is right, that that, that is a kind of politics, and that is a kind of empowerment, and that is does have um, the possibility of changing things. Yeah. And that gets all that gets the idea of democratic culture. And we've talked about this with regards to deliberative democracy, the idea that we're go, you know, we're going to have people affected by the problem come together face to face to discuss it and how difficult it is for that model to have any uh, 
political impact, political properly understood, right? And how the larger the the scope of the problem becomes, the less uh, the less useful this de- deliberative model becomes. But I mean, I think Graham understands those issues and and is um, not saying that this is this is the the solution by any means, but it it does serve to address problems with our politics right now that we need to get better at. I mean, in, in, including just uh, how do you argue with people who disagree with you? So guys, I think we've we've talked, um, I think enough about, for now, about uh, some of the arguments that Graham lays out and uh, kind of set the stage for some of his, his ideas. I think he might be the first to say that they're not perfect. Some of these things are still in development, but I think that there will be um, some interesting takeaways for people that are interested in climate change and maybe having dialogues with, with people that they with whom they disagree about these issues. So without further ado, here's my interview with Graham Bullock. Before we get to this week's interview, I wanted to take a minute to tell you about our sponsor on Democracy Works, the Penn State World Campus and its Psychology of Leadership program. Sharing responsibility, empowering others, looking forward, motivating from the head as well as the heart, building trust through collaborative decision-making. Is this the type of leader you want to be? Then apply for the master's program that will get you there, the Master of Professional Studies in the Psychology of Leadership, offered entirely online by Penn State University's World Campus. Learn from talented faculty with top academic credentials and professional experience. Learn from other students from diverse backgrounds and industries. Master of Professional Studies in the Psychology of Leadership at Penn State allows you to be the leader you've always wanted to be. Learn more about the Psychology of Leadership program at worldcampus.psu.edu slash leadership. Again, that's worldcampus.psu.edu slash leadership. And thank you to the World Campus for supporting Democracy Works. This is Jenna Spinelli here today with Graham Bullock. Graham, thanks for joining us on Democracy Works. Thanks for having me, Jenna. So we are going to talk today about the notion of climate citizenship and how that ties into small-D democratic citizenship more broadly. You bring an interesting perspective to this work. You have studied climate policy, consumer behavior, corporate social responsibility, but you've also studied deliberative democracy. So you bring an interesting mix there. Um, To start us off, can you talk about um, how you define climate citizenship or or how we should maybe think about that and how it fits into democratic citizenship more broadly? A lot of my thinking about citizenship has been informed by teaching a course at Davidson College on citizenship and consumerism. And in conversations with my students and papers they've actually written on citizenship, on climate citizenship, on water citizenship, on responsible transportation citizenship. And they've taken sort of uh, theories, you know, kind of from the political theory uh, literature and and other literatures to kind of apply uh, to questions, problems that they see uh, in the world around them. And so with the, the concept of citizenship, I think for me, the kind of a core definition is that you're a citizen is someone who's a member of a community that in, who engages with one another to solve its collective problems, collective challenges. Um, and then there's a lot of differences and debates and disagreements about 
you know, sort of more specific definitions. And I think they tend to revolve around two dimensions. So one is the, the scope of citizenship, and the other is the scale of citizenship. So uh, starting with the, the scale aspect, so, and this goes back to you know, the Greeks and Romans, right? So you know, the, the polis, right? The Greeks saw citizenship as this, and Aristotle as this you know, very local, very natural identity uh, of someone in a community, right? Uh, and then the Romans sort of made it a little bigger, right? A little more legalistic, you know, national, um, and, and, and defined it, defined the scale much more broadly. Uh, there's also, you know, a tradition that dates back uh, a long time as well, the cosmopolitan tradition. So Diogenes, the, uh, the cynic, you know, famously said, I am a citizen of the world, right? He didn't, you know, even limit himself to either a community or a nation. Uh, so, um, so there's those debates. And then there's the debates about, sco- about scope. Uh, and this is, uh, you know, they, the te- they can be around sort of uh, civil uh, citizenship, you know, sort of equality before the law. We are all citizens. The rule of law applies to us equally. Uh, then there's political citizenship. We all have a vote. We all have a role to play in self-governance. And then third is the sort of social definition, right? That we all have certain rights uh, to benefits from the community, right? So that's sort of a welfare kind of understanding of citizenship. So, so there's a lot of debates there as well. And, but I think if we return to that idea of it's people trying to solve problems at some scale around some scope, I think that's helpful. And then we turn to, you know, climate, right? So we've talked on the show before about several models of citizenship, which is, I think, what you're, you're getting to here. There's duty-based citizenship versus engaged citizenship. So using that frame, how can we bring climate into those models or, or how do people see climate change through those, those lenses of, of citizenship? Exactly. So duty-based citizenship you know, is the sort of traditional sense of what a citizen does. So voting, obeying the law, paying taxes, right? serving in the military, you know, all this conventional, like, what does a citizen need to do? Uh, and engaged citizenship is a little broader, right? So things uh, like social activism, just a broader sort of commitment to making your country or the world a better place and buying sustainable, responsible products, right? You know, that's another kind hmm. of component. So, so that, that you would see that as engaged Citizenship versus duty-based, like yeah. I go to the store every week, I'm going to buy the organic product versus not. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, these these are, how do you say, gray <laughs> lines, especially when you think vernacularly, like I feel a duty to buy the right product, right? But I think theoretically that's the distinction that's been made. In my class, I also add another, I break it down by sort of voting and protesting, um, philanthropy and volunteering, uh, like giving money or giving time, and then deliberation, right? Uh, as a part of citizenship, which we may talk about later. And then finally, lifestyles, right? So it's not just about buying things, but it's just how you live your life, right? What what choices do you make every day? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and are there are there differences from, you know, what you've seen in your students about how they think of these different models of citizenship and, and their role as climate citizens versus what may be likely to see from baby boomers or, or older generations? Yeah, and then this is... Uh, borne out in the research by Dalton and others that older generations tend to have a more duty-based orientation towards citizenship, 
Although there's some indication that pre-war generation, you know, uh, also had a, a, an engaged, uh, yeah, they were strong on both, or are strong on both, uh, and uh, and that younger generations, millennials, uh, are more oriented towards engaged and much less oriented towards duty-based. No, I was gonna say, yeah, I mean, we've certainly seen that with the, the climate strike recently, uh, led by a member of Generation Z, or maybe even what comes after Generation Z, you know, whatever we're calling 15-year-olds these days. Uh, yeah, so I think we're, we're certainly seeing some of that play out. Right, and and so I saw saw this and see this in my, my class, in my courses, you know, that students today have a more kind of global conception of citizenship and, and a more engaged one. And and so, and so what I, a little exercise I, I do at the end of class is ask them to draw a picture of citizenship. Uh, what does it look like to you? You know, sort of try to use a different part of your brain. And they, they're, they came out with some really interesting ones. Building on, so Derek Heater has what he calls a citizenship cube, right? And, to, and there's one sort of dimension is the geographic scale, right, from local to global, Another is the different functions, you know, of citizenship. And another is education, actually. So the, the, the skills, the knowledge, the dispositions you need to be a good citizen. But they, they were much more creative. They had a citizenship, right? Like a, <laughs> like a boat? A boat, yeah. And they had, you know, the oars were one part of the sail was another part of citizenship, you know, protesting or whatever. Uh, a salad bar was another. Uh, a, uh, another was a toolbox, a tree, a bicycle. Right, uh, all different ways to conceive of the different dimensions of citizenship. It's not just voting. It's not just protesting. It's many of these things put together. And then how do you apply them to a topic, to an issue like climate change? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so listeners out there, if you want to draw us a picture of what your citizenship looks like, we'd love to, we'd love to see them. If you send us your, your boats or your bicycles or, or whatever you come up with, love to see it. Um, so, so where does climate fit in uh, in these in these representations of of citizenship that they came up with? Yeah, so the climate obviously is is both a local and a global problem, right? And it's also uh, you know a cultural as well as political problem. So they talked a lot about sort of shifting the so-called dominant social paradigm uh, that we need to think you know more clearly about moral accountability. Uh, what is our personal accountability? Need to talk, talk and think more about justice. You know, what does that mean exactly? Uh, and um, also just, you know, sort of awareness, right? And, and educating ourselves. You know, first you need to know what the issues are about climate change, why, why it's happening, where it's happening, what are the consequences uh, environmentally, economically, et cetera, and then doing something about it. Yeah, so this is, this is all great from, from, from a classroom perspective, but for... You know, listeners out there that are not in a classroom, maybe have not been in a classroom in years or, or decades or, or who knows how long. Um, how can how can these ideas, these these concepts that you've worked on with your students translate out into the broader world? I think your point, your your invitation to draw a picture is is a starting point, right? That uh, think for yourself, what does citizenship mean to you? Is If it's just voting, that's great. But, you know, maybe there's other aspects to it. And and then take an issue like climate change. It might not be climate change, but just say it was that you care about. Like how how can you take a kind of multidimensional, uh, multifaceted approach to dealing with this issue on an individual level, right? So you know it could be protesting. It could be writing your member of Congress or senator. Uh, it could be deliberating with someone you know may not be on the same page, right? An uncle, an aunt, you know, a neighbor. 
that you know you're trying to reach out to them and uh, engage, right? And this is hard work, right? This is not easy. I'm the first to recognize it, but democracy is not always easy. Uh, and and if we care about these these, these things, we you know, need to start somewhere. Uh, and I think the environmental movement in particular gives us specific hope, right? If we look at the history of the environmental movement, just say over the last 50 years. So we have the 50th anniversary of Earth Day coming up next year. And you think of all of the people, you know, who have contributed to that movement over that period of time, starting with those demonstrations across the country uh, of April 1970. Uh, And, you know, they didn't know what was going to happen, but they did something, right? And then a lot of them went on and worked for decades, you know, on uh, things that they cared about, whether it's water pollution, air pollution, climate change, and that change did happen. I think we would all agree that the environment is much better protected than it was 50 years ago, even though we have still many challenges. Uh, so you, you, I know you've also done a lot of work around the, the idea of corporate social responsibility, um, something that we've we've talked about on the show before as well. Uh, is there is there an analog or, or a comparison to be drawn there to uh, what, you know, thinking about how we hold companies responsible for taking action on climate, being sustainable, et cetera, et cetera. Is there a, a parallel to be drawn to how we as citizens can hold ourselves and, and, and hold each other accountable or, or responsible, uh, things like that, for, for climate action? I think I'll first say that, you know, also taking that historical perspective, that the corporate sector generally I think is has had a real, for the most part, paradigm shift on issues of the environment and sustainability. And many CEOs, many sort of frontline employees get it. Uh, and a lot of the, the issues are political and a lot of politicians operating kind of on a playbook that's about a decade or two out of date uh, and it hasn't been updated. Uh, and they're not listening to the updates being provided by CEOs and businesses. Um, Having said that, there are still obviously some some holdouts or skeptics out there, and that's part of that deliberative model. Um, you know, how do you engage them, bring bring them in more, you know, uh, to the extent that's possible. From a citizen or consumer perspective, uh, it also that's also hard work, right? Figuring out what products are 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 green, are environmentally sustainable, uh, takes time, right? And my advice generally is, you know, not to get overwhelmed. Right. You know, be realistic about what you can do, what you can research and take one product at a time. Right? One that you really care about and really you know, sit down with that product, research it and then make a decision. Share that decision and then move on to another product. And then you've done after several months, many products uh, and then also make it social. Right? do it with your friends, your family. Right. Uh, and don't it's not this burden that you have, but it's something that you want to do. And then, you know, recognize, yeah, that's not going to, you're not going to do all your products, but if all of us do a little bit, we have this collective sense of a shadow of the consumer, right? That politicians, companies, you know, they sometimes see consumers doing stuff, buying green products, but also they're like, whoa, they might do more. I better be prepared for that, right? Otherwise, I'm going to, I'm going to take a real reputational hit. Yeah. I mean, nobody wants to get like the one star review on like the, the climate review site or, or, you know, something like that in our, our culture where everything is like so ranking driven, so rating driven, so social. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And they don't, you know, want to be Nike, you know, that had had a 
you know, terrible reputation for 20 years, you know, that they've in many ways moved beyond, but still there's this long-term effect, right? You know, that people still think of Nike and sweatshops. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so I think recognizing that, yeah, your one act may not change the world overnight, but collectively and over time, it can influence uh, how people think about sustainability and the climate. Yeah, and you're doing some work in this area, right, to kind of find ways for all these individual product evaluations or, or reviews to, to come together and, and have a home or for people to do bring some of that social element in it, like you were saying before, do this with your friends, your family, your colleagues. Yeah, so several years ago, some students and staff and I at Davidson, we kind of came up with this model that we're, we ended up calling the Responsible Consumers Club. We met once a month. Uh, and sat down and talked about the products we'd been researching and shared our sort of insights and then moved on right to another one. Uh, and it and it went well for a couple of years. Um, then I went on sabbatical and had two kids and and students graduated. But we're kind of returning to it and trying to sort of ramp up a 2.0 version that has an online component where you do that research. You still, you know, make it social locally, but then you share with communities around the world what you found uh in there that can be that further reinforcing effect um it's responsibleconsumersclub.com it's the website's still kind of in process but there is some information on there that you know kind of can give you some ideas and guidelines some worksheets if you're interested right yeah. you know and, and it really is about you making decisions for yourself it's not me it's not some experts you go and identify information and uh kind of live your values, right? You know, and uh, figure out what products are, are a concern, what issues are a concern, and and make decisions about what you care about. You mentioned uh, deliberative democracy earlier. Let's let's dive into that a little bit. Um, there's, you know, lots of, of movements um, was there's some happening here at Penn State and, and, and other places to bring people together for dialogues about climate change. The notion of you know, how to uh, engage with people who have differing views, maybe maybe people who are climate deniers, or even if they're not deniers, climate skeptics, maybe. Um, and so in this in this era when it's easy, it's easier than ever for people to find their own facts, their own sources of information. We're seeing this polarization in 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 how people get their information. Um, what what can deliberation bring? to this or, or how do you see deliberation as, as a, a path forward around some of this polarization? First of all, to say, I don't think deliberation is a, how do you say, um, holy grail, right? You know, um, silver bullet to the problem of polarization. But I think it is a, is important kind of component and probably a necessary one uh, to figure out how do we overcome these divides in some way that I've seen, you know, uh, just in my classes, right? You know, that students are increasingly uh, hesitant to talk about uh, topics that they, they are afraid may, may be divisive. Uh, and, and so ever since I, so I teach American politics and ever since I started, I uh, had every Friday, usually students do debates on issues that we cover in the class the electoral college and checks and balances and uh, whether to privatize parts of the government and also issues, you know, like equality or healthcare or climate change. Uh, 
And those are great. They loved it. Practice, you know, public speaking. But I was realizing I was sort of reinforcing this kind of agonistic, competitive notion of politics. And so last year I decided let's change it up a bit and ask the students to model a different form of democracy, uh, more deliberative, more collaborative. But recognizing that's hard to do and they may not um, be able to just do that on the fly. And and so like I had, they, they wrote real speeches for the debates. I had them write skits, uh, political dialogue, sort of one act. Like, and they were subs in 20 to 25 minutes on the same set of topics. Uh, and they really got into it. And I gave them, you know, a, a wide sort of um, range of scenarios. They could really do anything they wanted. They could set it in their dorm, on campus, in the community, in a totally imaginary and different world. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the, really the most creative one was about climate change. And the, one of the students played a polar bear that was a climate refugee in Los Angeles. And he's lying on the side of the street and this pot smoking surfer dude sees him and stops and says, are you all right? And he's like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I had to swim here from uh, the Arctic, you know, because my iceberg was melting, you know, and, and then the surfer dude was uh, like, oh my God, I'm so sorry, you know, come here, get in the car, cool down in the AC, you know, and, you know, it's so terrible. We dropped out of the Paris Accords and, you know, we're not doing, you know, uh, carbon tax, you know, and, and then the polar bear says, what do you mean? You know, the Paris Accords are terrible, you know, and, you know, a carbon tax that would destroy economy and I wouldn't be able to get a job. So he's a climate skeptic, even though he's a climate refugee. And then they launch into this really, you know, intense discussion uh, between a polar bear and a <laughs> surfer dude. And again, they find some areas of agreement, but also, you know, have areas of disagreement. And so that to me demonstrates that sort of sense of friends can argue and should argue about these really tough issues and should continue to yeah. because that's what a democracy is all about. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm seeing a lot of maybe opportunities here, like thinking about how this, again, kind of scales out into the the community or settings outside the classroom for maybe communities to partner with their local theater organizations or, or something like that. Um, if you were going to go about trying to convince someone to voluntarily participate in something like this, that they don't have to do it for class or for a grade, or there's there's not that, that incentive structure in place. Um, how might you do that? Yeah, I think it's one that's all on our mind. How do we overcome that sense of apathy, that sense of uh, not being able to make a difference, right? That I'm just one person, just one voice. You know, why, why spend the time? And that's a real issue, right? That people have constraints on their time, their resources, their money. Uh, and so the first is, again, going back to being realistic. But at some level, you have to make a decision, right? And you have to say, okay, do I care about something to do something? And, and the metaphor that I've been kind of playing with is, you know, you think about the boom in superhero movies over the last 20 years, right? So just 10 years ago, the, their market share was less than 3%. This year, it's almost 25%. And so millennials, younger people in particular, have been living in this sort of world of, of superheroes, of what we saw kind of epic dramas, right? Where, and, and I think that there's, it's not just Hollywood feeding this to us. It's that there's a demand for it. They're looking for heroes. But to think about, okay, well, what is the you know, hero in us, right? What, 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 if I, what would Superman do? What would Captain America do? 
about climate change. I, I've been sort of struck by an image from the most recent Avengers movie. Towards the end of the movie, Captain America is nearly defeated. He's standing on this battlefield, and all of his fellow Avengers are nowhere to be seen. And there's this huge army, Thanos, you know, hundreds, thousands of, of bad guys. But he stands up, and he still fights, right? And it's that sense, even in the sort of that moment of apparent inefficacy, right? How is he going to stand up to these? He still does. So should we do the same, right? If we care enough about a particular issue, we should do it anyway, right? And, and then at some point, I believe, and this is a sort of, a, it's a little bit of a kind of existential or spiritual commitment that your friends will come, right? That everyone else will come along to that issue. Uh, if, as particularly if you engage with it authentically, genuinely, uh, and effectively. And so that to me is, you know, not sort of trying to step out of that utilitarian framework and a more, you know, sort of virtue-based one. Um, because it's more about identity, about uh, who you are as a person, right? And what, what does it mean to, to live excellently, right? To live virtuously. It's, maybe sounds old-fashioned, um, but I think there's, you know, some real truth in that. And so when Captain America or Captain Marvel or Black Panther stands up against incredible odds, it's because of that sense of identity, right? That's who they are. They can't not do that, right? They you can't just walk away. And so how does that then apply to us? Can we just walk away as citizens, as thinking about our citizen identity? Or do we have that responsibility that transcends a kind of very narrow sense of either engagement or duty. And then what do we do with that? Right. So uh, putting my, my Michael Berkman hat on here for a second and thinking about institutions, uh, what what role, if any, does the government have to play? I mean, there's certainly, it's it's great for citizens to, to come together and take actions on their own or, or, or collectively in, in varying shapes and sizes, as, as we've been talking about. But, you know, when it comes to actually changing policy, where 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 does that connection fit in here, if, if at all? So, for example, just on the responsible consumption, the, the consumer angle, it's important, you know, to push companies to produce more sustainable products. Uh, but at the end of the day, not all companies are going to do it. Uh, and so I think one of the things that I talk in, about in my work and in my, in my book, you know, is the value of kind of a ratcheting up process where a few companies model and show that higher standards of efficiency, energy star products are possible. And then the regulators can come along and say, okay, we've shown this is possible. We think it's important. Let's have a mandate, right, that says all refrigerators have to have a certain standard of efficiency, right? And, and that that's really how these, these voluntary initiatives, these consumer-based, information-based approaches can have lasting and wide-reaching impact. Uh, and, and yet it doesn't always happen. So... That's kind of the next step of responsible consumption is pushing for that to happen and defend when it has happened. Uh, so, for example, we have standards now for many appliances, and those are important, uh, and they should be upheld. Uh, then, you know, then they're more broadly, you know, just, you know, sort of engaging with your, with your elected officials, right? You know, sending letters. So I, in my environmental politics course, uh, I teach students how to write policy memos. And I encourage them to send them to 
someone to the stakeholder, right? I don't tell them what they have to write, you know, or, you know, but I teach them how to do it well. And we can all be doing that, right? We can all be reaching out and trying to connect with them. And then, of course, there's voting, right? I mean, that's sort of a baseline, duty-based <laughs> uh, notion of citizenship. But it's still critical, and then we all need to take it seriously. And then a, a final one, you know, is, vo- is returning that idea of vocation. Some of us, you know, can pursue careers, professions in working on these topics, right? So as uh, activists, as advocates, as corporate executives, as politicians, right? And, and sort of rescuing that concept of politician as a, a, an incredible role in society and not this kind of dirty word. There's bad politicians, but there's also good politicians. And we need more of the latter. So, so all those are, you know, sort of important and necessary responses to that, you know, call of citizenship. So, Graham, you've given us lots of tools for our toolbox uh, that, that people can fully uh, take what has worked for you and your students and scale out to their communities. So uh, we will link to your book and to the Responsible Consumers Club in the show notes. And thank you again for joining us today. Thank you, Jenna. It's been a great pleasure. All right. So I think this, this, uh, uh, his idea of this class assignment is interesting and worth kind of uh, reflecting on. So, so again, his idea is that, you know, he started this class where he had students debate each other. And um, as I think many people would recognize in, you know, kind of the, the, the media landscape right now that produces more heat than light, right? You have people who true, but those are not examples of real debate. Well, I mean, I mean, they're food fights on cable. TV. Of course, but the yeah. but the point is that that's what people see, and that's what they often model, and there isn't a lot of examples of what he would take to be a more fruitful, more constructive debate. The point is that he wanted them to at least engage critically the um, the point of view of the other side. And he thought that this debate was not the right way to do it. And so he, he came up with this idea of having the students write a dialogue, right? And so they're, they, by, through that assignment, the, the task was for every student to frame the argument on the other side as best as they could, right? And, I mean, I can tell you that in... Yeah, that's a neat idea. It is a, it's an interesting idea. And yeah. I can tell you that in, you know, in neuroscience, one of the best ways to uh, control the effects of motivated reasoning in your own mind is to consider the opposite, consider the other side. And so when you are constrained by this assignment to say, what would a climate denier say about this? Or what would, you know, someone who likes, who is, is, um, thinks the Second Amendment is the most important freedom we have, what would they say about this? And, and frame it in a way where you are assuming they are people of goodwill and reasonable intelligence, then, then you are um, modeling a different kind of argument, right? One thing that I've noticed in our politics, and, I, 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 and it has a lot to do with our party system, uh, and I wonder if what, what he's up to helps to fight against this a little bit, is this sort of division that doesn't exist in other democracies at all. 
between uh, one side that denies the science right. and the other side that accepts the science, uh, as opposed to an argument between, say, a conservative and a liberal party, uh, where a conservative party says, oh, so we have this problem, here are market-based solutions right. to it, against uh, a liberal party that says, here's a problem, here are government-based solutions to it, and you have that conflict. Mm-hmm. But we, we never get there well, we, in the United States. We have not, yeah. We, we, have, we can't. Mean, well, no, I, we, <laughs> I think we probably were there in the 70s and maybe even into the 80s, but after that, it's gone, and I don't know how we get it back either. Right, because now we have parties divided on the science. Right. And politics is an awful place to debate science. Mm-hmm. Science is where you, de- right. where you and, and, discuss science. And you, if, if you can't agree on a common set of facts, and, and politics this, is almost impossible. Even- so I think Graham, you know, just in talking to him and listening to this interview, he was seeing this, um, this debate process go on in his class. And, of course, the students, you know, learned their side and produce the best arguments for their point of view. But the way in which these debates took place uh, were not constructive. We're not helping students either A, learn about, learn responsibly about what the other side really thought, but then more importantly, the whole debate process became this kind of spectator sport where people were more interested in, in scoring points than and, and owning the other side than they were in using the process to, to discover yeah. a better or more refined truth. Yeah, I know some people, when they do debates in class, uh, require students to take the side that they don't agree with uh-huh, as, a, uh-huh. as, a way, as a way of doing that. But he, he's uh, addressing this in a different in way. In a different by, way, yeah. By trying to get away. I mean, we are taught from high school on that debate is a sporting event, right? You're on the debate well, team. Well, it's a team, yeah. yeah mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you go out there to win. The idea that... We, as a society, and especially those of us in higher education, need to find or think of alternative ways of engaging young people and in and in, and in, inculcating in them, uh, teaching them to uh, develop these skills of argument, right? These abilities to um, listen carefully to um, to the other side and to start with a presumption of um, goodwill and respect on both sides, I think that's worth doing. Yeah. And, and yeah. so I think, you know, in that sense alone... But, and that's done by having you put yourself in the position of that. Precisely. Of that. So you're not actually having that dialogue with somebody from the other side. You're having it with yourself. Right. And your own perception of what that other side is. So uh, for that, that reason alone, I think it is worth hearing and, and encouraging these kind of different models. So, Absolutely. Yeah. It, yeah. It's, I mean, um, we're, we hear all kinds of interesting ways in which deliberation is integrated into addressing political issues. And people recognize this yeah. is a problem that they need. I mean, people within, the, within that um, school uh, recognize this is a problem and they really are, are, are addressing it and coming up with new and interesting yeah. ways to do it. So mm-hmm. this is one of them. So, um, from the McCourtney Institute for Democracy, I'm Chris Beam. I'm Michael Berkman. This has been Democracy Works. Thanks for listening.